Good morning again. We continue our walk through the book of Revelation with this last message here. We'll be through the first three chapters of the book. And I want to make a disclaimer. None of my sermons, or if I teach a class, is not all comprehensive. There's always more to find out, more to say, and more to apply. Of course, you can see the title on the screen, The Complacent Church, Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines the word complacent as this. Marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual, defi- actual dangers of deficiencies. Complacent people are very pleased with themselves. Or they feel that they don't need to do anything about a situation, even though the situation may be uncertain and or dangerous. For example... You and I cannot be complacent about our health. If we are complacent about our health, we can get in some serious trouble. Now, the church at Laodicea had become complacent and content just like the city itself. The church had become satisfied with its wealth and position, although at the same time it was devoid of any spiritual depth. And what usually happens in the community sometimes is played out or reflected in the church in which the city or community the church is located in. Now, unfortunately, the Laodicean church parallels many churches of today. Influence, comfortable circumstances that result in lukewarmness. Many, if not all, have become self-satisfied Success has been equated to big churches, beautiful buildings, and huge budgets. What about you? What about me? What about us as a church? Because one thing I know for certain, dearly beloved, is we easily forget that God desires and rightly deserves our hearts, not just lip service or numbers. Let's look at the city itself, the city of Laodicea. It was located on the Lycos River Valley. To the south, it had 8,000-foot mountains. On the north, a less defined range. But at its lowest cliff or bluff, it was marked by what it looked like from a distance, accumulation of snow. The city was located 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, It was on the same major postal road from Pergamum through Thyatira, Sardis, through Philadelphia, and then on to the Mediterranean Sea. It was also 100 miles east of Ephesus. On the strategic crossroads where the route from Ephesus crossed the route running from Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. These are two major roads that cross-connected right there in Laodicea. And because they were so important, both those roads were maintained very well. And the city's strategic location made a place of considerable importance. It was critical for trade and communications. The city was also a baking center and continued to increase its wealth. In fact, it became the wealthiest city in Phrygia. 
It was known for its soft black, raven black wool. It was also a famous school of medicine there. They developed a compound for curing eye disease. It was referred to as a Phrygian powder. Now, however, the city did have its drawbacks. The earthquake happened there in AD 60, virtually destroyed it. But listen very carefully, because it's going to come out to play here in a minute. Rome offered financial help to rebuild that city, but they rejected it. Their wealthy citizens rebuilt that city. And they took pride in the relative independence and self-deficiency. Another drawback that we'll hear about in a moment, the city did not have its own water supply. They had a pipe water in from Hippolys. Hippolys was six miles south, and it was an aqueduct that came out, and it made itself vulnerable to enemies and, of course, their weather. And the religion in the city was typical of the period, combination of local and Roman gods. Judaism was also prominent, both in numbers and influence. However, they had accommodated to paganism. And this may have been the source of the Colossian uh, heresy that we read in the book of Colossians. So there is just a snapshot of the city. Now, two of those things are going to come to play out very heavily in the letter. Well, let's start by looking at verse 14, shall we? The amen, the faithful, and true witness. Now, this is probably an echo from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. It reads, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. Now, I know what you're thinking. I didn't hear one amen in that whole thing. You're correct. But in Hebrew, instead of by the God of truth, it renders it by the God of amen. Now, what does amen mean? When we say a prayer, we say amen. We're not saying over and out. It means it's trustworthy. It's surely. So be it. Verily. Truly. You see that in Jesus' New Testament? Truly, truly, or verily, verily, that's amen, 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 amen in in the Greek. So that's what it means. So what does this mean as we look at this text? It seems to be pointing out the fact that Christ is God's affirmation. The emphasis being placed on the truthfulness and divine origin of the message which the church is about to hear. And the amen is linked with the faithful and true witness. It's described the authenticity of Christ's character and his witness. See, some witnesses may tell the truth, but prove unliable. They don't show up. They don't faithfully appear to testify. However, some may faithfully appear to testify, but they don't tell the truth. They are false witnesses. They mislead. However, hear me clearly, Jesus is always faithful to give testimony And he perpetually speaks truth every time he opens his mouth. Look what he says next in verse 14. The beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is God's instrument in creation. Go back to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus was there at the beginning of creation. He's not a created being. i got to watch myself. I'll start chasing the rabbit, brother. But he was there 
In the beginning, in fact, John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was God, and the Word was God. What is being driven home here is that Jesus, in the final analysis, is in the position to know and to speak. In light of their wealth, their complacency, self-satisfaction, they thought of themselves as being in control. And Jesus said, no, you're not in control. I'm alone in the one who's in control. In fact, he is the very source of their wealth and power. May we never forget that. He is in control, and he is the very source of everything that we have as individuals and corporately as a church. And this is where the letter, excuse me for using this word, gets very ugly in the illustration he uses. Look what he says in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. And he goes on to say, I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, at first you look at that, well, I can understand not being lukewarm. I can understand why he'd want them hot, but he would want them cold as well. Well, let's get to that. As I previously mentioned, the city had no water supply of its own. Let's not forget, it wasn't founded for its natural advantages. It was commercial and military advantages. And the junction of the trade routes, the reason the city started in the first place. Now, Harpolis was six miles to the north. It was known as a resort area. It had warm and hot springs with heavy mineral contents. The ideal place you would go to find relief for your tired, aching bones and all sorts of ailments. You could bask in that hot spring with the minerals and just... Relax. We have some places here in the United States that you can go and soak in the hot springs and minerals. Now, to the east, 10 miles, was the city of Colossae. They had water coming out of that city from the mountain. It was cold, and it was pure, and it tasted so good. You ever had pure water that just comes from melted snow off the mountains, nothing added to it? It's cold. It's, I don't know how to explain it. It's very refreshing. That's the kind of water they had. Now, since they had to bring the water in, they got the water from Hippolyte, and the water didn't have time to cool, and it contained minerals. Now, you see a picture here of an aqueduct that they had discovered, and as they discovered, look at it, they found large mineral deposits within the aqueduct. Now, both of these factors would make the drinking water undrinkable, <laughs> so it wouldn't be drinking water, that was a dumb way to say it, it is undrinkable. And it became known as a city for its tepid and revolting water. Here's the point. Their church's deeds were unproductive and unfruitful. They should have been described like the waters of Hippolytus, known for spiritual healing, or Colossae, been known for refreshing and life-giving ministry. However, in verse 16, he says, Because you are lukewarm, I will spit literally vomit you out of my mouth. Those mineral waters had calcium carbonate deposit. Any attempt to drink it would make one vomit. It was disgusting. And those deposits on that south of, of Hippolytus, I told you about, they had these, look like accumulated soda. That was actually the mineral deposits you could see. 
that was in the water. Now, they were beautiful to look at. You can see them from Lady Osito, very beautiful to look at. But that provides the perfect metaphor for what he's telling the church here. The shallowness they had. Because just like those middle apostles were beautifully outwardly, so was the church. It just looks beautifully from the outside. But inwardly they were sick. They're making Christ sick. So this is what the Lord is basically saying to the church. Like your own water supply, you are lukewarm and disgusting to my taste. I wish you were either a fresh, life-giving drink of cold water or else a healing, hot mineral bath. But because you are neither refreshing or life-giving or healing, you are simply disgusting. Therefore, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is a harsh judgment right there. Just like that water the city was known for. Ugh. He goes on to verse 17. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Remember that earthquake back in AD 60 that destroyed the city? The cities didn't want any help from Rome? In fact, some of the buildings that were reconstructed were remarkable. They built a gymnasium. A stadium with a semicircular track, 900 feet long, a triple gate and towers, several beautiful buildings. In other words, the city was actually more beautiful after the earthquake and they rebuilt than it was before. But the church was like the city. Material wealth meant spiritual wealth or spiritual health. And just as the city of Laodicea had perceived no need for help from Rome... The church had no perceived need for help from God. They said, we have need of nothing. The boastful pride and self-sufficiency rendered them blind. Their lack of knowledge led them to miss one essential truth. They possessed no spiritual wealth or spiritual health whatsoever. We don't need a thing. We can take care of ourselves. I'm dangerously going to chase a rabbit. Just bear with me. The biggest lie you are told is you can do this by yourself. You cannot. Christianity is not to be lived in a vacuum. We need each other and we desperately need God. If you fail to do that, you will fail miserably. And just like he describes the church, there will you be. See, they did not suffer from external pressure from the pagans or even Jewish persecution. It wasn't there. There was no eternal threat from heretical movements. They had simply given in to their affluent lifestyle. And the worst part of it all, they did not even know it. Look what he says in verse 17. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That term translated wretched is used only one other time in the New Testament. Romans chapter 7 verse 24. That's where Paul is speaking about the wretchedness of his own sin. It can be defined as distress, trouble, or to pronounce unhappy. And this is a very stark contrast between the self-sufficiency of the Laodiceans and the judgment of the risen Lord. He says you're miserable or pitiful. 
Now, to really understand that meaning and what's going on here, you have to understand what mercy is. Because they think they have all these merits, all these virtues, all these qualities, what they're in desperate need of, and they don't even know it, is mercy. Have you ever considered how merciful God is day in and day out to every 4.5 billion people on this planet? Every single day, he is merciful to all mankind. Wanting everyone to come to salvation and none to perish. He says they're poor. Now, this is not just simple poverty, but grinding poverty and need. Like the wealthy city, the church had an abundance. However, as Dr. Patterson says in his commentary, I love this, is wallowing in spiritual squalor or filth or foulness before the gaze of the risen Lord. We have all these things. No, you are poor. In fact, you're not even poor. You're below poor. And you don't even know it. And remember that Phrygian powder they had that said they could cure eye disease? Yeah, you may have that, but you know what? You're spiritually blind. You can't discern your own condition. And despite its rich woolen industry, that soft raven black wool that drove a lot of people out of business, by the way, because he says they're naked. The church was exposed and humiliated before God. That's some harsh, harsh judgment. Look in verse 18. Even in spite of all this, it amazes me that Jesus says this thing next. I advise you or I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you, become, so that you may become rich. Now, of course, that's the process is referring to of subjecting gold to a tin seat. The impurities melt. They come to the top and the goldsmith will then scrape them off, throw them away, and you get a higher quality gold of higher carat. Now, we're not told what the purchase price is here, but I bet it involves faith. Because faith is sometimes referenced in the Bible like being like fine gold, 1 Peter 1.7. He's talking about going through trials and tribulations. In verse 7 of 1 Peter 1, he says this, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, as we go through trials and tribulations, we're like that gold in that pot. He's bringing all those impurities up, and God is now taking those out, scraping out, so we become more like the Son of God and more like we should be. See, self-sufficiency is the direct opposite of faith. And the church is being urged to recognize its adequacy. In faith, they are to seek the face of God, where alone there is adequate understanding, love, and power. Not only do they buy gold, he also talks about and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Remember back in verse 17, they're from that they're naked. They had nothing available to them to hide their shame. And I can imagine they're thinking, how can this be? We have this wool that we're famous for. People all over the world come here to buy this stuff. How can we be naked? He's not talking about being physically naked. He's talking about being spiritually naked. 
See, it's possible to wear all the latest fashions made by the famous designers. You can have all the best suits, dresses, shoes, purses, you name it. And yet, at the same time, be naked before the eyes of God. This I have on is just nothing but window dressing because God knows exactly what's in my heart. White garments symbolize righteousness, being washed in the power of the blood. Well, we just sung about that, didn't we? There's power in the blood. This is an obvious call for repentance. Realizing the shame of their spiritual nakedness, they are to receive the gift of righteousness from Christ. He sums it up in verse 18, talking about an eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Once again, that Phrygian powder. The city was known for it. And a place that was known to restore vision. This church was located there. They had no vision at all. They were blind. What a contrast. They must be anointed with heavenly salve or God's eye salve so they can see their spiritual blind, so they can understand they're spiritually blind and receive spiritual healing from Christ because Christ alone is the source of all healing. Now just take a moment. I don't spend much time, but just think about everything that's been said. They're lukewarm. They're poor. They're miserable. They're naked. All these things. And that, look what stands out. Look what verse 19 says. In the middle of all this, look what he says. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I got to say this. I don't care where you're at in life. I don't care what you've done. This tells me Jesus still loves you. I mean, this church in the middle of all, I mean, he's talking about wanting to spit them out of their mouth. They're so disgusting. And yet, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Despite their deplorable condition, they rebuke. They are nonetheless the object of Christ's affections. And he deals with them as children. Now, his discipline is correct, but it's always done in love. For example, Proverbs 3 Starting uh, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. From whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. In Hebrews 12, 8. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So we never have the chastisement or discipline of the Lord. Hebrews tells you better check where you're at because God corrects his children. No different than you correct your children or grandchildren, whoever the case may be. And that's zealous, that's eagerness to get right with God. Stop being lukewarm. Be zealous for the things of God. Be zealous to repent. Rush to him now and replace that lukewarmness. Now, verse 20 has been used as an evangelistic text. I stand at the door and knock. Everyone hears my voice and opens the door. I can see that. I mean, Christ is standing at your heart now. He's knocking. Hey, will you let me in? But one thing about this verse, it's not addressed to the lost. 
But to the church, I'm not saying, you can use this verse. I'm not saying it's like an unpardonable sin. You can, but I want you to look at the context. It's addressed to a church. Ephesians 5.25 tells us the Lord loved the church and gave himself up for her. What happens in a church that Jesus is not found within, but he's outside standing on the door? Hey, can I come in? How's that look? What's that feel like? That's what's happening in that church. They thought they're all about Jesus, but yet he's not in there with them. He's outside the door trying to get in. And can I just blanket this question? In all of America, how many churches, even our own Southern Baptist denomination, have churches that Christ is not on the inside, he's outside, probably out in the parking lot somewhere, saying, hey, can somebody please show me the way and let me come in? This is the reason why they encountered such sharp criticism. Their self-sufficiency had become an end within itself. Their purpose was no longer God's will, but simply by maintaining the excellent fellowship they assume existed. They have need of nothing. We have it all. Can you see the blind arrogance to which Jesus is pointing to? Hey, hello. Let's just get back to the basics. If it wasn't for Christ, wasn't for his Holy Spirit that convicted me some 20-some-odd years ago, I would before you today because he alone gave me the gift of salvation. It all started with him. How dare I take it and claim it to be my own? He said, if you open the door, verse 20, he says, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. <laughs> you have to realize in the ancient Near East, when someone invites you in, that was a big deal. Their expectancy to you to make intimate relationships with that family you came in to have dinner with, just as there was intimate relationships within that family itself. You became part of that family. And didn't have a lot of food back then. It was a big, big deal to have this relationship. So by Christ inviting them in, he goes, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to sit down and break bread with you. The promise is one of forgiveness, acceptance, and restoration. But verse 21 builds upon that when he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. What? I'm sorry, I'm getting a little excited now. Think about that. To sit down with Christ on his throne. Now we know when Christ finished the work of redemption, what did he say on the cross? It is finished, John 19, verse 30. And Hebrews 1, 3 tells us that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now his work does continue, but it's intercession. And we see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, posture of rest and the position of honor. See, the day will come in the promise of God when they too will have a position of honor and a posture of rest. This doesn't imply inactivity. Rather, this rest is a reprieve from all the difficulties they have here and now. He's inviting the overcomers to join him, sitting on his throne, 
is generally to extend to them the privileges of being a member of the family of God. It's really the recognition that we read in scriptures that we have become heirs, co-heirs, or joint heirs of everything that belongs to him by virtue of his unique relationship as the only begotten son of the father. A hair, not the hair, I'm sorry I might be saying it wrong, not the hair on your head, an heir. What has Christ inherited? Everything. If you are a follower of Christ, you will inherit everything. He who overcomes, I invite you to sit down with me on my throne, just as I also overcame, or I had the victory, and I sat down of the right hand of my Father. In all that glaring, harsh criticism, judgment you see in the beginning of this letter, man, does it turn. And it turns greatly. Can you see the description of the church being dirty and nasty and self-sufficient, all this stuff? And all he's basically telling them is this. You see this message throughout the entire Bible. This is what you're doing. It's wrong. This is what you need to do. And if you repent and ask for forgiveness, this is what I'll do this. Every time in the Old Testament, this is going to happen. But if you turn back to me, this is what's going to happen. Every single time. So once again, I want to remind you, I don't care where you've been, what you've done, there is forgiveness, acceptance, and registration, rest, restoration in Christ Jesus. And then I said, as I began, the condition of the church in Laodicea parallels many churches of the day. Affluence, comfortable circumstances have resulted in lukewarmness. And success has been equated to big churches, beautiful buildings, and big budgets. Many, if not all, have become complacent, self-satisfied, and we easily get that God really wants and desires our hearts. Unfortunately, many have made God just another line item in their portfolio. I mean, after all, they have insurance for everything else. House, car, possessions. Christianity is now viewed simply as eternity or fire insurance. The point of this letter is to warn you and I that God demands and quite honestly deserves our best. If status affluence, prestige, and position are more important to you than God is, you too will result in the same thing that he says to the church here. You will make him sick, and he will spit you out of his mouth. That's not my words. That's the words of the text. There's an old hymn. I'm sure you've heard of it. When I survey the wondrous cross, you ever heard of it? When I was looking at this last night, kind of retweaking things, and this came across my mind and my heart that in that hymn has this line: "Love so amazing, so divine, fine, demands my soul." my life, my all. I think if I could find a hymn that kind of wraps up this letter 
is that one by that statement. Where are you in all of this? We've come a long way, you and I, since I first got here a little over five years ago. We've made some steps, some strides. Has it been easy? Let me give you help you out. No, it hasn't. <laughs> We've made some tough decisions along the way, haven't we? We've prayed many, many times together. Sometimes many of us weeping. Asking God for guidance on what to do. But here we are. God is calling us to a deeper walk with him. Now, I don't think we're nowhere near the church in Laodicea. But I know one thing, we're not perfect. We're a work in progress. And what I'll extend to you is the invitation that God has extended to me. If there is anything in your life that you need to straighten out, do it today. What is keeping you back? I'll give you a hint. I'll tell you what's keeping us all back. You want to hear this? Fear. Fear keeps us from pursuing the life that God wants us to have. If we simply would trust him, put all our faith in him, trusting that he has everything under control, life would be so much better for us here on this earth. I know. I've done things my way. There's been some terrible results. A lot of hurt, a lot of weeping, and a lot of regrets. But here's your chance. And it happens every day. His mercy. Let go of the past. Learn from it and press on. And we can face the future. I've said this so many times. We can face the future with full confidence that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Because as we look back, we can see every single time he was there. It was me that got off the path, not him. But because of his mercy... He used some of you, people in my life, along with himself, directed me back. I just want you to, to think about these seven letters. Because at the end of every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, it was dressed to that church. But there's lessons in there for all of us. Let God search your heart. And search your mind this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your unending mercy and your faithfulness. Time and time again. God, you're so faithful. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in the sound of my voice this morning, dear God, remind them of that that we saw in the text, that those whom you love, you rebuke and discipline because you love us and care about us. You want us to be the very best we can be. You want us to ever conform to the image of your Son. 
So, Father, here we are, bowing before you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, everything that we have. And we're asking you to take some inventory. Show us. Show us, Father, so we may confess and repent and turn back to you. And Father, most of all, I ask this morning that everyone in the sound of my voice will know without a shadow of the doubt that you love them. That your love is so great, I can't even have enough adjectives to describe the love that you have. Remind them, dear God, that you want them, you love them, and you're here to bring restoration and healing. But it's our choice. Give us the courage. Break down the chains of fear so we may obey the calling you place on our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just stand with me, please.